Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. And welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, did you know that I broke my hand uh, during high school rollerblading? Uh, but, but you wouldn't think I'd be so surprised about it. Why is that? I don't know. It was, it's just really hard to grasp. Oh, my God. That was terrible. Uh, th- that feels like one you wrote yourself, not one that you got from a list of dad jokes. <laughs> it was a combination. I was inspired by a joke I saw elsewhere. I'm... I didn't laugh, but I did make a slightly der- derisive smiling sound. <laughs> so, so we'll put that on the list of good ones then. Uh, success no. was achieved. Hank, uh, do you want to know some good news this week? I always do. The uh, eight-episode Hulu adaptation of Looking for Alaska has cast its lead actors, Charlie Plummer and Christine Froseth, and they're both such lovely, lovely people. I talked to them both on the phone, and they could not have been nicer. And I'm just... It's been a long 13 years, but I am so, <laughs> so grateful uh, that that these young people are going to be uh, part of the Looking for All Alaska right. story. I'm really psyched. Well, I guess I, my book is out now, so I guess we'll, we'll see it see it on coming to the big or small screen sometime in the mid twenty thirties. Yeah, as if there'll be humans then. <laughs> That's great news, John. Thanks for the for bringing it back down. Okay, uh, <laughs> I did break my hand while rollerblading in in high school, though. Yeah, That's, I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> you want to talk about a sport that has not aged well? Yeah, it's kind of disappointing. I wish that I saw more rollerblading. Montana is particularly a bad place to rollerblade. One, because it's lots of hills. And two, because we're really bad at infrastructure. Right. There's not a ton of, like, real smooth sidewalks. No, no. All the sidewalks are over 100 years old, and the freeze-thaw cycles do wreak havoc on anything uh, solid. 
that's that's uh, that's the kind of, that's the kind of high quality <laughs> informational content that people come to do Hank and John for. <laughs> do you want to know what it's like to rollerblade in Missoula, Montana? <laughs> We've got information for you. Hey, do you want to hear about a sport that uh, last <laughs> existed before you were born? People still rollerblade. You're going to alienate all our rollerblade listeners. Oh, I assume this is all for Nick, not for <laughs> not for the pod. <laughs> All right, Hank, let's answer some questions from our listeners. That sounds like not a terrible idea. This first question comes from Morgan, who asks, Dear Hank and John, does milk expire when it's inside a cow? Pumpkins and penguins, Morgan. Oh, Morgan, I think that you might have been misinformed (laughs) about the way that milking works. Milk, yeah, the way that milk works. It It would expire when it's inside of a cow, I guess, but the cow would expire first. Uh, well, in the, in and of, in the way that like, uh, that like a cat, like a, that inside of a dead cow, the milk would expire. Is that what you're saying? Cause that is true. I'm saying that if a cow died with milk inside of it, that milk would not be permanently drinkable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds... That sounds right. You know why, Morgan? You know why, Morgan? Because nothing lasts forever. Not even cold November rain, not even the human species, not even milk. Not even milk inside of a cow. Uh, yeah, Hank, do you ever pause to consider how incredibly weird it is that adult humans drink the milk of a different mammal? I don't think it's that weird, John. I don't think it's that weird. Well, there is no other species that drinks... Uh, the milk of a different animal into adulthood. Name another species that does any of the stuff we do. Oh, I can name a a number of other species that whisper. I've recently reviewed it on the Anthropocene Reviewed. There's a monkey that whispers. Raccoons whisper. Oh, that's lovely. But, uh, John, there are are butterflies that drink the tears of other animals. Like, we, it's, there's always somebody that does something. Uh... And, and lots of vampiric species that drink blood, including humans. Humans drink the blood of animals mm-hmm. uh, or, or eat it if we mix it into harder stuff. Personally, um, I, I, only, I only try to do that in, in, in an emergency. But I know there's a lot of different ways to be a person. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 do, I do. I think that if you look at anything from, from the wide lens, it's like, oh, that's very strange. I find it very strange that humans come out of other humans and that every human did that. I, th- I think that that's weird, but it's very normal. It's like the weirdest Matryoshka doll possible. Like you open up one Matryoshka doll and inside of it is a Matryoshka doll that was born from the larger Matryoshka doll. Yeah. I hadn't really thought of it in that way. But here we are, all all inside of our nesting doll of the human species going all the way back to like ultimately like single-celled organisms. So it's pretty weird, John. It's pretty weird. What are we talking about? Hank, does milk expire when it's inside a cow? No. No? No. No. I'm not really an expert on this, but I'm pretty sure no. I'm going to lean toward no, but I do know that with contemporary uh, dairy farming practices, it can be quite bad for a cow not to milk them. Yes. And also, like, I I think that we sometimes think about uh, milk as, like, a thing that, like, it gets, like, it fills up the sack and then it just sits there. It doesn't just sit there. It actually, like, is continually replenished by, like, new fluids coming in and coming out of of the milk. So... It's it's like almost always fresh because it's always being refreshed inside the cow or whatever mammal. Great, I think we've covered it. 
This next question comes from Stephanie, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I work in an office with a lot of other people, and one of the hazards of my job is that those people have babies. I do not have a baby, and I have not spent a lot of time around babies, and I have not spent a lot of time around people who spend time around babies. I know that when people have children, they like to talk about them, and it's nice to hear how happy they get when people do talk about their kids. But because of my extremely limited knowledge of babies, I never have any idea what questions to ask. Like, is it weird to ask if a five-month old has teeth can they eat a chicken nugget yet (laughs) (laughs) that's a good question has it had a chicken nugget wait 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 i need to know has it had a chicken nugget i can go get a chicken nugget can i be its first chicken nugget i can't imagine being a human on earth without having a chicken nugget and that baby is one of those imagine that you're telling a nice anecdote about your five-month-old baby and Stephanie says, oh, that's a great story. Hey, has your kid had a chicken nugget yet? And you're like, no. I mean, no, they're, they're not allowed to eat solid food. And also, no. I mean, uh, chicken nuggets are so good, though. Arn had his first fish sticks last night. Can they talk when they're five months old? That's another one of Stephanie's questions. I want to learn more about these babies, but I can't without basically asking, what tricks does it do? <laughs> I mean, that is kind of the thing that you do. You, you are basically asking, what new tricks does your human pet do? Can right. it... Can like does it have does it have a weird bone coming out of its mouth? Can it roll over? Like things that basically any human can do, but it's very weird when a baby does it for the first time because a parent has been living with this strange being in their house that can do nothing when it starts. Nothing. It isn't capable of zero. It's just a plant. I put it down and it stays there. To all the way to like uh, first grade when it's like you know having conversations with you. Well, also, Hank, it doesn't even stop there. Humans continue to do new tricks even after they turn six. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. What Stephanie's question really makes me think is that essentially all we're ever asking each other, aside from how's the weather, is what new tricks can you do? Like, whenever I talk to anyone about anything, essentially what I'm telling them is, like, there's a new thing that my body is doing, or there is a new thing that I'm up to, or there is a new thing that's happening to me. It's like, I've got a new trick. (laughs) My new trick is my back hurts a lot. Yeah. (laughs) No, there has been a fascinating development. It's called the flu. Yeah. Oh, man, that sucks, John. I'm sorry. Uh, getting over the flu is just miserable. But it reminds me of the absolute importance of getting your flu shot, which I did get. I just still got the flu. Which is a thing that happens. Yes, but, but it increases herd immunity, and it's not really about saving my life. It's about saving the lives of vulnerable people who are extremely uh, susceptible to serious uh, complications from the flu. So get your flu shot. I'm sorry, was that the question? All of life is asking people what new tricks they do, Stephanie. And so just ask people what new tricks their babies their babies are doing and you'll be great. I, th- I, I would never have been able to put my finger on it, John, but that is basically what you're doing. And, and like, it's very difficult to know. I, I had a baby two years ago. I have no idea when they get teeth. I've, I've completely forgotten when they start talking. I've completely forgotten when they start eating solid food. Like, when's your first chicken nuggets? I don't know. I don't know when Orn had his first chicken nugget at a point. And we were probably like, we shouldn't be doing this, but like, he, he likes it. So he's a person. He can eat he, person food now. 
the moment when we could start feeding Oren like whatever we were having for dinner was just such a freeing, wonderful moment to be like, to go from being so, like, I have to feed a separate feeding for this person and us. So we're making two different dinners to being like, oh, whatever we're eating, I'll just put it on his plate. Really? My children are significantly older than Oren and they require their own dinners because I don't like to eat chicken nuggets. <laughs> well, I mean, Oren eats whatever. He le- he eats all food. My my kids will my kids do not like Thai food. Like they do not like curries. Oren Oren likes spicy food. He oh, likes he oh, le- he had asparagus and ravioli for dinner last night. Okay, uh, new 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 bet. Is there any way that you and I can bet the name of this podcast on whether Oren is going to like spicy foods and asparagus? He might like asparagus. Whether Oren is going to like spicy foods and eat all of the dinners that you eat when Oren is five? Oh yeah, no, I will not take that bet. Absolutely okay, not. Yeah, that, that that's going away. One of the new tricks that your kid will do in the future is absolutely one hundred percent refuse to eat curry. Which reminds me uh, that we have other questions to answer, so we should probably get to them. This one comes from Kaylin, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, I am currently a sophomore in college, double majoring in legal studies and English. I'm hoping to go to law school after undergrad, and I just found out that space lawyers are real. Should or shouldn't I become a space lawyer? Pumpkins and penguins, Kaylin." I mean, no one told me about this. Oh, you don't know about space lawyers? No. I mean, I guess there's like, there's got to be somebody doing the law about space. Exactly. There's a lot of law to figure out up there. What belongs to whom? What spaces can you occupy? Where where can you put your satellites? I think being a space lawyer would be cool. I actually have some experience in this field, Hank, because I- You're you're a space lawyer? I am not a space lawyer. Um, It's going to surprise you. I- haven't been like hiding my law degree from you for the last 15 years. Okay. I have, however, signed a contract that invoked and involved outer space. Uh, is it the, the Hulu thing? Because no, no, but I, I signed a movie deal okay. years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, and when I signed that movie deal, one of the clauses oh my was about how no matter where the movie or TV show that was made from my book appeared anywhere on earth at any time in any medium and also elsewhere on other planets or anywhere in the universe. (laughs) This company was going to own the rights to that movie. (laughs) And I remember seeing it and just being like, did you actually, are you actually worried about Mars theaters? Like, John, the thing that I like most about that is if they hadn't thought of that, if they hadn't realized that space theaters were a problem, people would totally build space theaters just so that they could show pirated movies. No, no, exactly. This whole thing occurred because precisely because lawyers failed to see the Internet and digital distribution coming and all of these movies were in a weird way. Mm-hmm. land where nobody knew for sure who owned the the rights to what and they had to go back and pay people again and everything. So they had to be as as inclusive as possible. And so I, I think it literally included the phrase, the known universe. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if you could show the movie in a different universe. Right. What about parallel universes? Like, can, yeah. I, can I leave this timeline? Please, God, just let me leave it. <laughs> 
Can I leave this timeline, go into a different timeline, uh, rewrite the movie, and resell the rights? Or is that a week? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, well, I mean, like, honestly, maybe, maybe, like, the fact that they did all this space lawyering on this contract is going to shut down space exploration. Because if we had this extra reason to go to Mars so that we would have, like, a whole new way of controlling intellectual property and we could start over from scratch, there'd be, like, the, the, like, creative reason to be a Martian rather than, like, a scientific or an extractive industry kind of one where there'd be, like, new rules, like, like creative anarchy. Everybody owns everything again, and you can totally remake Disney movies, no problem. Then people would go to Mars because there'd be a real strong economic reason to go there. But they shut it down, John. They shut it down. You think, you think you've seen Snow White? No, 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 no. Wait till you see Martian <laughs> Snow White. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I do not think, for the record, that is a reason that would truly incentivize interstellar. Well, we'll never know now, will we? <laughs> Hank, I hate to disagree with you about this, but I think the space lawyers have done us all a service by saying sure. there will be no new Snow White on Mars. You're stuck with the same dang Snow White no matter where you go. I thank you to all the space lawyers out there for making sure that the uh, intellectual property <laughs> rights of America's <laughs> largest corporations are protected under all circumstances. I mean, you're making space lawyering sound not great for Kaylin. I bet there's a bunch of other great space law that doesn't have to do with protecting the rights of Disney. Also, I mean, Disney's a person. It needs its rights protected <laughs> just like anybody. <laughs> That's right. That's right, John. Absolutely. Disney is a person and needs its rights protected just like anybody. Here we are. Vote. <laughs> All right, Hank, let's answer this question from Jessica, who writes, Dear John and Hank, a guy I know was hired at the company I work at, and after a couple weeks, I decided to sell my car, and he expressed an interest in it. He asked me to test drive the car for a week, and I let him. So the end of the week came, and I was too shy and non-confrontational to ask him about uh -huh, it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Here's where the problem becomes worse. It's been almost two years, and he's still using uh -huh. it. Did I let him steal my car? Yes. Is it his car now? Is it no. too late to do anything about it? Should no. I find an opportunity to oh blow up the car and keep the insurance money? <laughs> you got Love it. your ideas, Jessica. That is the worst idea. I Yeah, well, I mean, except for maybe letting him continue to drive the car in which, like, you own the vehicle and are thus liable for, like, what he's doing with it. Yeah, exactly. That is the big concern here, Jessica, aside from everything else. Like, I suspect that the person who's done this is is pretty manipulative and has kind of put you in a situation where every time you've tried to bring it up, they make it seem like, why are you trying to bring up that thing? We're cool. Uh, if it's a if it's just that truly you you just never wanted to bring it up, then you need to work on the, the confrontation skills, I guess. Mm -hmm. I can kind of see how this happens because I am also pretty non-confrontational. Um, but it's one of those situations where the risk that you are taking on by continuing to let this person drive your car, because it is still your car, like it's still under your name and everything. And, and also you're paying insurance every month. The Probably the risk is too high. So you have to go. It's, I know it's going to suck, but you have to go and you have to say, hey, you know the car that you've been driving for two years? That's my car. I need my car back. Uh, and I need it yeah. back t t today. Yeah. 
And just say, you know what you can say, Jessica? Actually, just send them to the pod. We're going to do it right now. Hey, uh, congratulations on having driven a car for two years that was not your car. And Mm -hmm. it's been a good run. And that's great. And I'm very happy for you. But now it's time to drive a car that you do own uh, because Jessica needs her car back. That was a really weird thing to do, man. It was a little weird, man. I mean, I, you know, I think I is a little weird. Jessica, I think it's probably easy to to blame yourself for this situation. And, and yeah, I think that you like clearly there should have been moments where you were more assertive in this. But ultimately, like that is also on this person. It's time. It's, you got to get your car back. You got to get your car back. I'm glad that we could help. I don't know that we I don't. Are you kidding, Hank? We've never helped. This next question comes from Lang, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I have a question that has plagued me low these many years of my bathroom using life. If I'm in a bathroom stall and someone in a different stall sneezes, should I say bless you? Oh, no. Yeah, in in a bathroom, you don't have to be polite like that. You can say whatever you want. You could be like, oh, that was a good one, buddy. Nope, no, no. Instead of saying bless you, you just like you like compliment the sneeze or you like you go bigger is the thing to do. Wow, that's the worst advice that's ever been given on our podcast, which is or really saying anywhere. something. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> it's a cone of silence, Lang. Like, no matter what, no matter where, if you are in the stall next to the person who is really doing anything, it's a cone of silence. <laughs> because we all have to create in our minds a mm. world of privacy that does not actually exist. And when that world of privacy is interrupted such as when I was in a urinal recently and I was peeing and the you person were in? was peeing. At. I was inside of it. Yeah, no, I was in. Yeah, yeah. it was weird, man. It was a big <laughs> urinal. I was at, sorry, I'm not very good at the prepositions. I was at a urinal recently and the person who was peeing next to me said, are you the author of The Fault in Our Stars? Ah! And I was like, it's, it's, it's ruined. It's, it's, this is, this is. <laughs> You've ruined peeing for me. Forever. I'm never going to be able to do it again. And I hope they don't listen to the pod because I don't, I don't want to call them out or anything. But I was, of course, extremely awkward in my answer because I was, I was having a moment in the, in the cone of silence. I was mm-hmm. inside a world where I, my belief system has always been that when you are in the bathroom, when you are not alone, you pretend that you are alone and you are as respectful of everyone else's privacy as you can be. I have had a number of conversations in, uh, while the bathroom things are occurring, and I've never been a huge fan of them myself. I, I, I try to let people be who they are. I did have a guy come up to the urinal next to me at a Chili's one time and say, let's see if this old thing still works. And I, <laughs> I kind of appreciate that. Like, long term, it was a good story, at least. Wait, um, was he referring to the urinal? Nope. Oh, I yeah, yeah, I get it. It's a uh, yeah. yes, it's a joke about genitalia. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I haven't heard one of those before. <laughs> I wonder if that's going to catch on. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 you know, I was in high school, and he was, uh, you know, he'd been he'd been around for a while, and I did get to go back to my table and tell everybody that story. So I don't mind giving people I, a story to tell. I have to say, I love it when old people have standard lines. I, yep. I, can't, I have an affection for old people's <laughs> standard lines, no matter what they are. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm entering the age 
where I realize that I am an old person with standard lines. Like my best friend Chris, whenever he is, uh, this is so dumb, but I, I find it so charming. Whenever we're at a restaurant, if somebody asks if he wants a refill of his Diet Coke, he always says, no thanks, I have to drive. <laughs> oh my God. That's really that's really bad. I love it though. I like I just realized how bad of a line that is. But every single time he says it, I'm like, oh god, it's because you know he's not drinking alcohol, but he's making it's funny. <laughs> it's funny, you know. It's uh, he's just like that coke really affects him. <laughs> it's the ca- it goes straight no. to his head. It's the caffeine. But yeah, so I, I I don't I never begrudge an old person their standard lines unless those standard lines are like you know deeply offensive or whatever. Right. So I, I don't know. For me, that's that's a little bit in the in between space. But in general, I think you try to preserve other people's privacy when you're in the restroom with them. Yeah, I've definitely had people come into the bathroom and recognize me, and then like do the double take and then be like, nope. Nope, this is not the place. And I'm like, correct. We are all we are all equal in the tiled, safe, clean, stinky place. All right, John, here's another question. It's from Abigail who asks, Dear Hank and John, hello! I am a high school senior who's just had her first college admissions interview. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh my gosh, that sounds stressful. Oh. I was extremely nervous and studied everything about the school beforehand. I rehearsed all my answers to questions like, what inspires you? And which extracurricular activity is your favorite? However, I was in no way prepared for the first question my interviewer asked, Tell me a little bit about yourself. (laughs) How am I supposed to respond to this? Is this a prompt to go into my whole life story, my deep struggles, or is it a time to tell her, like, what my Panera order is? Abigail. (laughs) Yeah, Abigail, like, until you asked this question, it had never occurred to me how weird it is to ask someone to tell you a bit about themselves. Because Because, really, like, the first thing I want to say is, okay, so get this. I have a consciousness, and I'm (laughs) able to think thoughts that are separate from the world, but I am inside of a body. (laughs) Okay, okay. College admissions interviewer, get this. I came out of another person (laughs) and so did you or you could be like sometimes when i'm by myself i like stare into the middle distance and i think like my head is completely empty of thought right now and then i think like wait was that a thought (laughs) or like it's a bit like they just want to know a bit so that's a good bit you could also be like uh my like uh, second toe is is longer than my big toe yeah, you want to know like just a little bit about me? Yeah. I have brown eyes. <laughs> Would you like me to go on? <laughs> that, was that enough? <laughs> you tell me when we've had enough bits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you tell me when you have enough. It's like the pepper on the Caesar salad. Uh no. the, the, whatever it is, Abigail, the thing you got to do is go all in on it. Cuz <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible advice. Do not go all in on it. Because you can't be like everybody else and be like, well, here are the sports I like. No, you got to be like, here is everything that you ever wanted to know about my toes. No, that is, I mean, yeah, that don't do that, Abigail. <laughs> what they want you to say is, 
what you're passionate about, what you're interested in, what well, when you uh, think about yourself, what makes you different from other yes. people applying to that college? Ultimately, like this person talks to a lot of people and so probably not much, but maybe going a little deeper and being like, I mean, a little bit about myself, like I am amazed by like the like the human story. Like have you ever thought about how every <laughs> one of us comes out no, of a person? No. Don't do that. Do not do that. No. You, no, because you don't. You don't want to go. You don't want to go that hard. You just. You need. You, this is the very beginning of the interview. If you, Abigail, swing for the fences. Go don't, hard. Do not sw- no, don't swing for the fences. <laughs> Try to hit a double. <laughs> this is not a situation to be like. Well, I'm gonna either strike out or we're all going home because I'm into this college in minute four. No. You, <laughs> The other thing you're trying to establish is that you're going to be able to interact with and contribute to the university community in a productive way. So being like, here's everything you need to know about my second toe is, I would argue, not the best way forward. Yeah, you definitely you also definitely don't want to talk for too long. That's probably a red flag for this person. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And then like 30 minutes later, they're like, "Uh uh-huh. I'll yes. just put a check mark in this box, and that's <laughs> that was uh, worth everyone's time, I guess. I remember when the college interviewer at Kenyon asked me to tell them what book I loved. For mm. some reason, I answered Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, wow! Which is a which is. I have no idea if it's a good book because the relevant the relevant <laughs> fact about that book in that moment is that at the time I said those words, I had read perhaps 50 pages of it, and I went on to maybe read like 12 more. <laughs> so when asked to name a book that like identified and embodied my value system, I named a book that I had not read. <laughs> If I had a college admissions interview, I do not remember it. Um, that's the only thing I remember because immediately they were like, and and what is it about that that you responded to so deeply? And I was like, and what is it about that that I responded to so deeply? <laughs> hmm. Can I, can I re-answer the question can I with go back? Sula by Toni Morrison or another book that I have finished. Can I get to actually talk about any of a number of very good books I've actually read? <laughs> Look, I want to be the kind of person who was deeply affected by Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. That doesn't mean that I am that person, but I want to be that person, and so I'm going to go with that. I'm not even sure that I do want to be that person, but yeah. I think I want to be that person based on the title and the 50 pages that I read uh, in the car on the way up here. It just reminds me, John, that this podcast is brought to you by books we haven't read, but want people to think that we are the kind of person who likes. Today's podcast is also brought to you, of course, by Jessica's Car. Jessica's Car, soon to be Jessica's again. And this podcast is also brought to you by John's Giant Urinal. He's in there. (laughs) And lastly, today's podcast is brought to you by The Martian Snow White. If you haven't seen The Mars Snow White, you don't know the real story. Ooh, the real story. Now, I'm worried that that's going to encourage people to go to Mars, which would be so bad for me. (laughs) Nobody ever thinks about – in all the conversations I see about sending humans to Mars, nobody ever talks about the, the the John Green implications. Yeah. It's like they think that I'm tangential to the whole human story. 
So listen, your toilet is massively gross, like it's grosser than you think. In fact, bacteria and viruses can hang around in the toilet bowl even after multiple flushes. And I recently found the easiest way to clean my toilet, Blue Land's Sustainable Toilet Cleaner Tablets. Just drop, watch it fizz, brush, and flush. It is truly that simple. No more scrubbing for hours. Plus, the tablets are plastic-free. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and for the planet with the same powerful clean that you're used to. Blue Land products are effective and affordable, and their toilet tablets are proven to work on a wide range of toilet stains, including rust, mineral deposits, lime scale, and hard water. And you can even get more savings by buying refills in bulk or setting up a subscription. Blue Land has a special offer for our listeners. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss this blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. That's blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. John, this next question comes from Hannah, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I was at my local Wawa the other day. That's like a convenience store, Anne. I know Wawa. Okay, and I ordered a cup of soup. I was yep. going to get a drink to go along with my soup, but then I started thinking, what do you drink with soup? Soup is already liquidy. It seems weird to drink something with it. But I feel like in the past, I've had soup lots of times and never had a problem deciding what to drink with it. Just yeah. another palindrome, Hannah. This is weird because I have this experience too. If I think about it, I have a hard time drinking while I'm eating soup, but if I don't, it doesn't seem to affect me. Maybe I'm not drinking. Maybe I'm just having soup and like I don't have to drink. Can you just have your drink in your food? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we get a lot of our water, our daily water from our food, not from drinking water. That sounds like, like a suspiciously like a science fact, John. Well, it's true. I I only know that because I one of the areas of my obsessive interest for a while was uh, um, how much water I needed to drink and of what kind in order mm. to prevent uh, being. I we don't need to get into it. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot about how much water you're supposed to drink because just I don't know. I, I get interested in stuff. Here's the point: when you're drinking hot soup. Mm-hmm. You want to drink ice cold liquid. It's just a wonderful go back and forth. Yeah. It was like a nice ice cold Diet Dr. Pepper. It's just Ooh. perfect Ooh. for a chicken noodle soup. Ooh, I was with you there for a second. I what think you don't that- want to do is you don't want to have like hot chicken noodle soup and then hot coffee because then you're just like, oh, this coffee is terrible soup. I will, <laughs> I will often have hot soup with tea because, like, if I'm like at a Vietnamese nope. place, they give you tea nope. and they give you hot soup, and nope. I'm like, I, I like, I should have had the tea before the soup showed up because this is too much. But I, I think that it's hot soup and ice water. Like, that's the way to do it because Mm-mm. you got like a salty no, thing, no. and I don't like to switch back and forth between like a Coke and a soup. That doesn't feel right to me. That it does feel right to me to switch back and forth between chips and a Coke, which is why that's. So devious of a combination of foods. I can do that forever. I love chips and Coke. All right, Hank. This next question comes from Kieran, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I recently read an absolutely remarkable thing, and I loved it. However, I was wondering if it would be okay to give it to my literature teacher, who I don't know very well. I'm concerned that it might be weird for an eighth grade student to give a teacher a book with some not school-friendly content in it. On the other hand, it's a great book, and I want her to read it. And if I do give it to her, do I tell her that it has questionable content, or do I not say anything and let her wonder what kind of person I am? I mean, Kieran, 
I don't know what book you read, but it, it, <laughs> it, I don't think that it has questionable content. It has some bad words in it, um, some some obscenity, but I don't mm-hmm. think it has anything in it that your literature teacher would be like, hold on there. That's not the Kieran that I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can kind of feel that way about like the parts of language and of behavior that are considered in a moral way. Like, I think that, that I, I don't think of much language, certainly some language I consider in a moral way, where like when I hear people using that language, I think they are doing something that is morally questionable. I don't feel that way about like the F word, but I do feel that way about other words. So like, I can see how you would feel that and and in different parts of the world different parts of the country that is a that is a more sort of uh common perspective and and i understand that and like understood it as i was writing the book and and knew that it would be to some people it would be kind of a barrier to it but i hope that that's not the case for your literature teacher and i'm honored that you would consider uh sharing the book and and i really hope that you do because i I hope that uh, I hope that more people find it, and I, I really especially hope that that teachers uh, will like it and share it with their classes. Yeah, yeah, it's such a big deal for students to share books they love with teachers because it helps teachers discover new books. I mm-hmm. can't tell you how many teachers have told me that they first read Looking for Alaska or The Fault in Our Stars or whatever because one of their students gave it to them. And I also think it shows a lot of respect for your teacher to say, I like the books that we're reading. I respect you as a, as a teacher, and I want to share a book that I love with you. Now, they may be busy and they may not have time to read it, but I think it's still nice to do. Hank, speaking of your brand new book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, we have another question from Seema, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I have problems taking money. Whenever I do a job for someone such as babysitting, when the money Mm. collecting time comes around, I just get so awkward. I understand I did a service for them and I deserve to be paid, but I still can't shake the weird feeling that I'm taking something from them when they pay me. So then I make it more awkward by trying to make it less awkward. I sort of act surprised when they're paying me like, oh, thank you. And then I leave. It's so annoying and I get mad at myself when I do that. What can I do to make myself feel better about taking other people's money? Who's got the keys to my Bima? Seema. Oh, Seema, I think I mispronounced your name at the beginning. But thank you for that very helpful uh, rhyme. I I have this problem, too. And I had to work so hard in my life to become the expert at self-promotion that I've become. I don't know if you've read my new book, Turtles All the Way Down, but it got great reviews. It is really hard because we're taught by the social order that accepting payment for work is in some ways – like embarrassing or naughty. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know, John, like I kind of feel like it's the opposite that like it, it is more natural for us to like do favors for each other and to sort of have a, like a, a sort of like small group understanding of I do this for you, you do this for me. And like, this is and like economies are relatively new, uh, you know, cultural constructions. They're, they're a technology. And, so figuring out how to like incorporate that technology into you and be like, okay, this is how I understand the world. I think that's not natural. I think it takes work and it takes learning. And yeah, that I, I feel that's how I feel. And I, and I think that it like it's a skill that must be learned. I love the idea of a 16-year-old babysitting for you, and then you come back after a nice four-hour date with your spouse, and you say, Hey Seema. Thanks so much for babysitting. Um, as I'm sure you know, 
economies are a very new technology. <laughs> and this whole like money exchange thing is not natural That's or normal. Not what I'm and so what I'm gonna do, Seema, is I'm not gonna pay you uh, for your work today. But what I am gonna do is uh, when you need a four hour favor, I'm going to uh, get a different 16 year old to do that for you. And then I'm just gonna build kind of a favor network, sort of a bartering no, network where I'm saying. at the top. It is essentially a, what it is, Seema, is a, it's a multi level marketing scheme. <laughs> But, but for with favors. favors, and, and I'm on the it, top. I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a million favors from <laughs> other from teenagers, and I'm gonna cash them all in. And you know what I'm gonna get, John? This is a, a lot of cars washed. <laughs> uh, I, no, I, I, I'm not I, saying that the technology of economies is bad or that like I don't utilize it, which obviously I do. It's just that it, it like it is something that I feel like you have to assert yourself into. You have to be, you have to, to like do the thing even if it feels uncomfortable and then eventually it feels comfortable. Like many of the things that we do that at first are really sort of like overwhelming and feel a little bit, you know, a little bit wrong, a little bit unnatural. Like something as simple as like calling a stranger on the phone, like it feels weird. It's not, it doesn't feel natural because like obviously it's not, Phones aren't are a pretty new thing. Talking to strangers is a pretty new thing. Yeah, talking to strangers is a pretty new thing. And I, I mean, never God, thought about that. Let's go back to when it was verboten. <laughs> Can we move back to when we never talked to strangers? That'd be great. Whereas I'm like, that was a nice sneeze there, next stall over. <laughs> I hope you're having a pleasant afternoon. How's your poo? Let's see if this old thing still works. <laughs> we got to answer one more question before we get to the all-important news from Mars and Nancy Wimbledon. This question comes from Asia, who asks, Dear Hank and John, no, dear John and Hank, dang it, I caught myself. My boyfriend is 25 and works in an escape room. He got this job after he graduated cool. with a degree in biology. He's worked there for almost two years, and at this point, his family is starting to pressure him to get a, quote, real job. The problem is he loves his job. At yeah. the job, he has learned how to build puzzles and code, along with minor electrical and construction skills. This isn't something he thought he'd do or love so much, but his resolve is fading, and he's starting to talk about leaving this job for a job that he'll hate. He says, you only get to like your job for so long. Aww. I don't think that's true. And even talking about quitting makes him so sad. How do I encourage him to stay in a job he loves? Should I not? I know this isn't what most people would consider a real job and has nothing to do with his degree, but isn't loving your job important? Thanks in advance. I trust your guidance. Asia, that's a terrible mistake. I think because this is a new job, like it's a, it's a thing that hasn't existed for a while. It's not that it's not biology. It's not that it's not that it's that it's something that people haven't heard of that much. And so maybe if he can frame it differently in his mind, th that will help because ultimately like there are lots of like really legitimate jobs that probably nobody in his life would be like, Oh, you got a degree in biology, but now you like work at city hall. Like no one would think that. It also may be a lower paying job, at least for now, but mm -hmm. I completely agree with you, Hank. If you're still being 
pushed and you're still learning things. You're learning about how to code and how to build puzzles and learning electrical skills while you're getting paid. Like that's great, especially if you're interested in that stuff and passionate about it because you don't know where that can lead. And so mm -hmm. if you still feel fulfilled by the work, let it grow. I, I agree. Like I don't know if escape rooms are going to end up being like a growth industry, but I do think that being able to code and being able to understand puzzles is going yeah. to be a big growth industry in the future. Yeah, it sounds like his job is like problem solving, which is it's, in the end, everybody's job to some extent, but uh, but like really directly applied. And the the only thing that I would say, if, you're, if your boyfriend is listening to this podcast right now, which hopefully he is, um, is maybe also try to get involved in the business of the escape room and yeah. like let your colleagues know that that's something that you are also interested in because then you are not like an escape room designer. You are also a business manager and management skills can be spread across lots of different jobs, including jobs in biology. Yeah, if you're operationally strong and you understand the basics of business and you can get things done, you can get a lot of different jobs. And I think that it sounds like you're on a great path, actually. Yeah, I think it's great. Congrats on the cool job. All right, Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, I, I got to share with you a couple things. First off, we got a letter from Mareka who wrote in to say that uh, she lives in Berlin and the amusement park in Berlin I talked about with the abandoned Ferris wheel is actually being reopened. They are, uh, they are making it into a new amusement park and they're going to save the Ferris wheel, apparently. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, also, also... Is it going to be powered by the wind still or are they going to power it with like electricity. I think they're going to go with electricity for this one, but I, I'm that not totally weird. sure. Also, we received several really helpful and interesting emails from autistic listeners on the question of eye contact. I wanted to read this one from Claire, who writes, Hiya, Green Boys. In regards to the episode of the pod where you talked about where to look when talking to someone, I'm autistic, so eye contact is extremely difficult for me. But over time, I've come up with some tricks that I use when talking to people that may be helpful. When I'm in a situation where I probably should be making eye contact, such as an interview, I stare at a feature near the person's eyes, but not at their eyes directly, such as their glasses if they wear them, their eyebrows, their nose, or their eye makeup if they have any on. It gives the illusion that you're looking at their eyes without the terror of actually doing so. I hope this helps, and I hope I'm allowed a name-specific sign-off, even though I'm not asking a question. We scare because we care. Oh, we scare because we Claire. <laughs> All right, John. I also really wanted to share this tip from Maggie, who says, Dear Hank and John, I am currently sitting at a bus stop where a bus just pulled up to see if I wanted to get on. I did not want to get on, so the driver opened the door and told me the correct protocol for signaling this to an oncoming bus is, according to the driver, uh, wave your hand horizontally at your neck in a kind of salute slash throat cutting gesture. So you know this one that, like, Jonah Hill does in the GIF that you've seen? Oh, yeah, I know that GIF. Uh it's it's pronounced either way. The thing that I thought Maggie was saying at first was like sliding your finger across your neck, which you shouldn't do that to a bus driver. That's very different from the waving fan at your throat. This is like, no, 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 not me. This other one is like, I'm going to kill you, bus driver. Right. Yeah, no, just Google Jonah Hill uh, GIF or possibly <laughs> GIF. Nobody knows for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if that works. Yeah, it's the first one that came up. 
Of course it is. I mean, Jonah Hill's done a lot of work in his career, but that GIF is by far the most important thing he's done. <laughs> oh, God. Jonah Hill seems like a great guy. You know what's not great? That's, that's my idea of a transition. <laughs> What's not great, John? Well, Hank, it's time for the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. I don't know if the news from Mars is good, but the news from AFC Wimbledon is terrible. AFC Wimbledon have lost their third straight game 2-0 and their fifth, Mm. sixth, sixth straight game overall. It's a very difficult period. Our CEO, Eric Samuelson, who works tirelessly for the club for the salary of exactly one pound per year, posted a a very kind, thoughtful, considered note to the fans talking about where do we go from here? There's a lot of talk about potentially firing the manager, Neil Ardley, who is a Wimbledon youth player, uh, played Mm. for the first team, just cares so much about Wimbledon. There's no question about that. But, you know, at what point do you try to figure out a different path forward to try to stay up? It's not clear. But Eric pointed out in the letter that clubs who fire their manager mid-season do not often see an improvement in results. No, no. And so it's just a really hard thing. I mean, one of the reasons that this is such a difficult season is, you know, if you go back and listen to early episodes of the pod where I'm talking about Wimbledon in the fourth tier of English football, I say over and over again that they have the smallest stadium, they have one of the smallest playing budgets, and yet they somehow found a way to get promoted. Well, you know, in the third tier of English football, it's it's only going to be harder. And so... These are big problems. I do not have a solution for them. I don't think anyone does. Uh, It's just a really hard time. So right now, Wimbledon are second to last in the League One table. Have to find a way to finish 20th this year to stay up. If we somehow manage to do that, that means that we can make it to next year. And during the season next year, hopefully, uh, the new stadium will open and Wimbledon will be uh, on the up and up again. But it's just going to be a hard year. There's no two ways about it. All right, John, the news from Mars. If you want an op- opportunity rover update, basically NASA's going to keep listening until January, but it has been four months now, so not great. But additionally to that, uh, so in order to get uh, the Mars 2020 rover to the surface of Mars, a number of things have to go right. One of those things is, uh, you know, they're going to shoot this thing at Mars very, very fast so that it gets there relatively quickly. And then it, uh, it slows down by hitting Mars. Uh, The part of Mars that it hits first is, of course, the atmosphere. So uh, Mars has a pretty thin atmosphere, but it is enough of an atmosphere that it can slow down, uh, especially because the thing isn't going to go straight at Mars. It's going to go sort of parallel so that it spends a lot more time in the atmosphere. That slows it down. Um, But then it will release its parachute. And they uh, have been testing... Uh, the parachute that will get the Mars 2020 rover onto the surface of Mars a bunch uh, just did the final test and it opened perfectly. Great. And the thing about this is so, so one, you have to figure out how to simulate the atmosphere of Mars. So in order to do that, you have to have the, the parachute open on Earth's atmosphere, which is much thicker, except when you're at a high altitude. So they shoot this thing way up in the air. They get it going very fast. And then they open it 
at a specific speed at a specific altitude, which is the speed that it will be going and the uh, and the pressure of the Mars atmosphere, which is basically perfect. We can actually simulate this really accurately. And then they have um, different loads that is on the end of the parachute to make sure that the parachute doesn't rip or rupture, mm. which their early experiments when they were first starting to do this did a lot because uh, the parachute opens in around uh, of I think four tenths of a second, so uh, it's a very it's about the size of a house. So it goes from the size of like a like a log of wood to like that you would throw on a fire to the size of a house in wow. a fourth of a second. So that's a lot of pressure, uh, and it, it is a sudden and tremendous amount of weight that is yanking on all of these nylon fibers and all of the stitching and all of the fabric. So. Um, the uh, the parachute opened perfectly at supersonic speeds with a load of sixty seven thousand pounds, which is the heaviest ever payload for a parachute ever, any parachute, um, and eighty five percent heavier than the payload that Mars twenty twenty uh, parachute will have to slow during its descent toward Mars. Mm. So you know, as they do at NASA, uh, this is planned to succeed way beyond where it will have to succeed and it has succeeded quite well so that's great news for mars 2020 the parachute is functional the rover uh, body is getting painted right now the chassis is is uh complete and they're they got all the the holes drilled in it and all the instruments are still under construction for the most part and but will be being finished up soon and shipped over to start being assembled into the final rover it's just amazing. Didn't the first Mars rover, didn't Curiosity uh, not use a parachute or did it use a parachute? It used a parachute. So it's a combination of multiple slowing mm. systems. So it the uses first, the parachute the and then one, there's the, like, there's the yeah. rockets that fire toward the surface of Mars. Yeah, I mean, technically, the first uh, slowdown is just the capsule hitting the atmosphere, and so that right. slows it down a lot. And then the parachute opens to slow it down even further, because if the parachute opened at like at the like when it first hit the atmosphere, the parachute would totally rip off because it'd be going right. too fast. So it slows down a lot just by going through the atmosphere. Then the parachute opens. Then it drops the parachute, and it gets lowered by this ridiculous sky crane thing placed carefully on the surface of Mars, which is, I can't freaking believe it worked even now. Wait, a sky crane will land on Mars first and then lower the rover down? No, the sky crane is uh, is a crane that is suspended in the sky by retro rockets. So it... Oh, it, wow. Yeah. That is cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It just completely boggles my mind how much engineering brilliance goes into this. Like yeah. they just there was just a problem on the International Space Station where there was this like pinprick sized hole mm -hmm. and they had to patch it or whatever. I don't really remember the details. What I remember is they were like what probably caused this is human error when doing the stitching. Mm. And I was like, oh, right. All of this stuff that is going into space is made by people. Somehow I had not internalized that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like when they're talking about building the chassis for Mars 2020, they're talking about like drilling the holes that yeah. the instruments will connect to and they drill each one by hand. Like, right. And they, so they do a pilot hole and then they do a second pilot hole to make sure that they're in the exact right spot. And then they do the final drill 
uh, because like every hole, of course, needs to be like perfectly in exactly the right spot. But it's done by a person. There's yeah. a person with a drill. <laughs> yeah, like we are not a species of artificial intelligence or whatever. We are a biological phenomenon, like turning cloth and metal into space stations. Yeah. Anyway, that's what you should tell your interviewer when they ask you to tell them a bit about you. <laughs> and every one of those people came out of a person. <laughs> it's humans all the way down. Hank, thank you for potting with me. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, we're going to go now and make our Patreon podcast uh, at patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. It's called This Week in Ryan's, and it is terrible. It's bad. This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. So is... So is This Week in Ryan's. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. The music that you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't don't forget forget to be be awesome. awesome.